Chapter 8 of The Growth of a Soul. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Growth of a Soul by August Strindberg. Translated by Claude Field. Chapter 8 The Runa Club, 1870 the Epsilon of the sixties showed signs of the end and dissolution of a period which might be called bostromic footnote bostrom swedish philosopher seventeen ninety seven to eighteen sixty six end of footnote in what relation does a philosophic system which prevails in a given period stand to the period itself the system seems like a collection of the thoughts of the period at a particular point of time the philosopher does not make the period but the period makes the philosopher he collects all the thoughts of his period and thereby exercises an influence on it and with the close of the period his influence ends the bostromic philosophy had three defects it wished to be definitely swedish it came too late and it wished to outlive its period to attempt to construct a purely Swedish philosophy was absurd, for that meant trying to break loose from the connection with the great mother stem which grows on the continent, and only sends out seeds towards the northern peninsula. The attempt came too late, for time is necessary to construct a system, and before the system was constructed, the period had passed. Bostrom, as a philosopher, was not, as it were, shot out of a cannon. All knowledge is collecting work, and is colored by the personality of the collector. Bostrom was a branch grown out of Kant and Hegel, watered by Biberg and Grube, and finally producing some offshoots of his own. That was all. He seems to have derived his fundamental principles from Krause's pantheism which itself was an attempt to unite the philosophy of kant and fichte with that of schelling and hegel this eclecticism had been already attempted by grub bostrom first studied theology and this seemed to have a hampering effect on his mind when he wrote about speculative theology his moral philosophy he derived from kant to call him an original philosopher is provincial patriotism his influence did not reach beyond the frontiers of sweden nor did it outlast the sixties his political system was already antiquated by eighteen sixty five when the students out of reverence for the philosopher had still to declare conformably to his textbook that the representation of the four estates was the only reasonable one a doctrine which was subsequently contradicted in the college lectures how did bostrom come to such an idea can one draw an inference from the accidental circumstance that he a poor man's son from norland came into close touch with king john and his court in his capacity of tutor to the princes could the philosopher escape the common lot of generalizing in certain respects from his own predilections and current time-sanctioned ideas probably not Bostrom, as an idealist, was subjective, so subjective that he denied reality an independent existence, declaring that, quote, to be is to be perceived by men, end quote. The world of phenomena, therefore, according to him, 
exists only in and through our perceptions the error of the deduction was overlooked and it was a double one the system rested on an unproved assumption and had to be corrected it is true that the phenomenal world only exists for its through our perception but that does not prevent its existing for itself without our perception in fact science has demonstrated that the earth already existed with a very high degree of organic life before anyone was there to perceive it bostrom broke with ecclesiastical christianity but like kant and the later evolutionist philosophers retained christian morality kant had been arrested in the bold progress of his thought by a want of psychological knowledge and had simply laid down as axioms the categorical imperative and the practical postulate the moral law which depends on the epoch and changes with it received in his system quite a christian coloring as god's command bostrom was still under the law he judged the moral worth of baseness of an action simply by its motives according to him the only satisfactory motive is that regard for the spiritual nature of duty which is revealed in conscience but there are as many consciences as there are religions and races therefore his moral system was quite sterile bostrom's importance for theological development only consisted in his coming forward against bishop beckman in the discussion regarding the doctrine of hell 1864 although that doctrine had recently been rejected by the cultivated with the assistance of the rationalists on the other hand bostrom was obstructive in his pamphlets the irresponsibility and divine right of the king and are the estates of the realm justified in resolving on and carrying out the change in the so-called representation of the people eighteen sixty five in his capacity as an idealist bostrom is for the present generation not only without significance but positively reactionary he is nothing but a necessary link in the worthless reactionary philosophy which followed with such fatal obscuritanism the illuminative philosophy of the eighteenth century he has lived and is dead peace to his ashes literature ought to be another barometer for testing the atmosphere of any given period and in order to be that it must be free to deal with the questions of that period but this the then prevailing ascetic theories forbade poetry ought to be and was according to bostrom a recreation like the other fine arts under such a theory and influenced by the prevalent idolatry of the ego poetry became merely lyrical expressing the poet's small personal feelings and inclination and reflecting therefore only some of the features of the period and those perhaps not the most important only two names in the poetry of the sixties were of importance snoilsky and bjork snoilsky was awake to use a pietistic expression bjork was dead both were born poets as the saying is that is to say their talents showed themselves earlier than usual both attained distinction while still at school early won honor and renown and by birth and position were enabled to view life from its sunny heights 
Snowelski, without knowing it, was under the power of the spirit of the new age, freed from the fear of hell and monkish morality, experiencing the retrenchment of his privileges as a nobleman, he gave free play both to mind and body. In his first poems he was a revolutionary and praised the cap of liberty. He preached the emancipation of the flesh and had a certain dislike to overculture as a conventional restraint. But as a poet he did not escape the poet's tragic destiny, not to be taken seriously. Poetry in the eyes of the public was simply poetry, and Snowalski was a poet. Bjork had a mind that was not capable of receiving strong impressions. At peace with himself, languid, complete from the beginning, he lived his life sunk in his own reflections, or noticed only the trifling events of the outer world, and described them neatly and correctly. In the opinion of the great majority who lived the peaceful life of Automata, his poetry shows a remarkable degree of philanthropy. But why does not this philanthropy extend itself further to large circles of men, and to humanity at large? In the writer's opinion, Bjork's philanthropy does not extend beyond the limits of the personal quiet which the individual attains when he ignores the duties of social life. He is satisfied with the world because the world has been kind to him. He avoids strife because it disturbs his own serenity. Bjork is an example of the fortunate man whose life is not in conflict with his upbringing but who rather builds up stone by stone on the foundation already laid everything proceeds in a workmanlike way by level and rule the house is finished as it was designed without the plan undergoing any alteration stunted by domestic tyranny tasting early the sweets of homage and reverence he ceased to grow he accepted bostrom's compromise with christianity without examining it and in doing so he had finished his life work his poetry is especially praised for its purity and spiritual character what is this purity which in our days is so sharply contrasted with the sensual the secret is that he did not get her just as dante's heavenly love for beatrice was due to the same involuntary cause Bjork, therefore, sang of the unattainable with the quiet melancholy of unsatisfied love. But that, however, is no virtue, and purity should be a virtue. In short, Bjork and Snelsky sang of water and drank wine, and in this were just the opposite of the poets of our time, who are said to sing of wine and drink water a poet's life always seems to be at variance with his teachings why is it that in compromising he wishes to escape from his own personality and find another is it a wish to disguise himself or is it modesty the fear of giving himself away and of self-exposure this is a weighty problem for future psychologists to unravel Bjork composed poems both for the reformation of the Constitution in 1865 and for the restoration to power of the king. He saw harmony everywhere, and when he celebrated the restored union between Sweden and Norway in 1864, he was extremely melodious. 
he also praised abraham lincoln negro emancipation and white slavery that is the ideal of freedom of the holy alliance revolution certainly but legal revolution by the will of god well he knew no better and few did at that time therefore we do not judge the man but only his work the motives inspiring which are a matter of indifference to posterity young men read these poets many of them with great edification they proclaimed no new era but prophesied after the event that now the millennium was come the ideal realized and lines of demarcation obliterated once for all they looked with satisfaction on their creations rubbed their hands and found them all good an atmosphere of peace had spread itself over the whole of ipsula and its neighborhood now one might sleep till doomsday was the belief of old and young but then discordant sounds began to be heard and in the days of universal peace fire beacons began to be seen on the neighboring mountain tops from norway open water was signaled and the revolving lights were kindled rome captured greece but greece recaptured rome sweden had captured norway but now norway recaptured sweden lorenz dietrichson was appointed as professor at the university of upsala in eighteen sixty one and he was the forerunner of norwegian influence he made sweden acquainted with danish and norwegian literature then almost unknown and founded the literary society which produced poets like snoilsky and bjork after norway had broken loose from the danish monarchy and had ceased to be a branch of the head office in copenhagen it was not grafted into sweden but retreated into itself at the same time it opened direct communication with the continent its awakening to independence was coincident with the strong stream of foreign influence it was bjorsen who first roused norway to self-consciousness but when this degenerated into a narrow patriotism ibsen came with the pruning shears as the strife became fiercer and christiana would not lend itself to be a field of battle the conflict was transferred to hospitable sweden the norwegian wine was well adapted for exportation pamphlets grew in size as they travelled and in sweden became literature thoughts came to the top and personalities settled at the bottom of the vessel ibsen and bjorsen broke into sweden tidemand and gude took prizes in the art exhibition of eighteen sixty six Karuf and nordak were authorities in singing and music then came ibsen's brand this had appeared in eighteen sixty six but john did not see it till eighteen sixty nine it made a deep impression on the primitive christian side of him but it was gloomy and severe the final utterance in it regarding deus caritatis was not satisfying and the poet seemed to have had too much sympathy with his hero to have described his overthrow with cold irony brand gave john a good deal of trouble he brand had dropped christianity but kept its stern ascetic morality he demanded obedience for his old doctrines though they were no more practicable he despised the tendency of the time towards humanity and compromise but ended by recommending the god of compromise brand was a fanatic 
a pietist who dared to believe himself right against the whole world and john felt himself related to this terrible egoist who was wrong besides no half measures go straight on break down everything that stands in the way for you only are right john's tender conscience which suffered at every step he took lest it should vex his father or friends was stupefied by brand all ties of consideration and of love should be torn asunder for the sake of the cause that john was no longer a pietist was a piece of good fortune otherwise he too would have been overwhelmed by the avalanche but brand gave him a belief in a conscience which was purer than that which education had given him and a law which was higher than conventional law and he needed this iron backbone in his weak back for he had long periods during which by fits and starts and out of mildness he thought himself wrong and the first who came right therefore he was also very easily misled brand was the last christian who followed an old ideal therefore he could be one hundred and ten pattern for one who felt a vague inclination to revolt against all old ideals brand was after all a fine plant but without any roots in its own period and therefore it belonged to the herbarium then came pier gent this was rather obscure than deep and had its value as an antidote against the national self-love the fact that ibsen was neither banished nor persecuted after having said such bitter things against the proud norwegians shows that in norway they were more honorable fighters than the swedes afterwards showed themselves to be ibsen was at that time regarded as a misanthrope and as an enemy and envier of bjorsen people were divided into two camps and the dispute as to which of the two was the greater was endless for it concerned an artistic problem contents or form the influence of norwegian on swedish poetry had been great and partly beneficent but there was a peculiarly norwegian element in it which was not adaptable to sweden a land with quite another development in the sequestered valleys of norway there lived the people who under the pressure of need and poverty found ready in their land in the christian doctrine of renunciation an ascetic philosophy which promised heaven as a compensation for earth's hardships nature in her most gloomy and parsimonious aspect a damp climate long winters great distances between the villages all cooperated to preserve an austere medieval type of christianity there is something which may be said to resemble insanity in the norwegian character of the same kind as the english spleen and possibly the intimate relations of norway with the hypochondriacal islanders may have impressed traces on its civilization in jonas lies clairvoyant this melancholy is depleted and in it one finds the same weird atmosphere as in the icelandic sagas and the theme also is similar the struggle of the spirit against physical darkness and cold there we have depicted the tragic lot of the norseman banished from sunny lands to gloomy wilderness and seeking relief by emigration the ethnographical significance of which has been overlooked in view of its economical aspect 
the norwegian character is the result of many hundred years of tyranny of injustice of hard struggling for a livelihood of want of gladness swedish literature should have avoided absorbing these national peculiarities but they have made it half norwegian brand still haunts swedish literature with his ideal demands with which the romanticized and cheerful swede cannot sincerely sympathize therefore this foreign garb suits him so badly therefore modern swedish music sounds so unharmonious like an echo of the violins of hardinger turned over by grieg therefore the talk of greater moral purity sounds discordant in the mouth of the vivacious swede he has not suffered from long oppression and does not need to seek himself in the past melancholy has not so beset him in his open flat land of lakes and rivers and therefore a sour mane becomes him ill when the swedes received great and novel ideas by way of norway or direct from the continent through ibsen and bjorsen they should have kept the colonel and thrown away the norwegian husk even the doll's house is norwegian nora is related to the icelandic women who wish to set up a matriarchate she belongs to the weird imperious women of harmonen who again are pure norse in them the emotions have become frozen or distorted by centuries of cognate marriages the whole swedish literature of feminism is ultra norwegian it contains the same immodest demands on the man and petting of the spoilt woman several young authors have introduced a norwegian style into swedish one authoress has placed the scene of her book in norway and made her hero talk norwegian further one could not go let us welcome foreign influence which is cosmopolitan but not norwegian for that is provincial and we have plenty of the same kind ourselves so john found himself again in upsala the same upsala from which he had fled nine months before and to which he most unwillingly returned to be compelled to a course which he did not wish always made him feel as though he were encountering a personal foe who cajoled him out of his wishes and antipathies and forced him to bend since he still believed himself under god's personal providence he accepted that as though it were for his best later on he had a feeling that there was a malignant power this developed into the belief that there were two ruling powers one good one evil which divided the empery or ruled alternately he asked himself again what have you to do here to take his degree but especially to cover his retreat from the theatre privately he wished to write a play and under the screen of its success wriggle out of the examination at first he was not at all comfortable in his lonely attic he had become accustomed to luxury a large room a good table attendance and society after having been habituated to be treated as a man and to have intercourse with older and cultivated people he found himself again in a state of pupilage as a student but he cast himself into the crowd and soon found himself on social terms with three distinct circles the first consisted of friends whom he met by day 
who were students of medicine and natural history and atheists from them he heard for the first time the name of darwin but it passed by him like a doctrine for which he was not yet right his evening society consisted of a priest and a lawyer with whom he played cards till deep in the night he considered himself now in upsala merely to grow and get older and that it was a matter of indifference what he did as long as he killed the time he drew up the scheme for a new tragedy, Eric the Fourteenth, but found it poor and burnt it, for his faculty of self-criticism had awakened and was severer in its demands. Later on in the term he entered a third society, which formed his special circle during the whole of his time at Uppsala and for a long while afterwards one evening he chanced to meet a young companion with whom he had been a pupil at the private school they discussed literature and over a glass of toddy made the plan of forming some young poets into a club for literary work the plan was carried out besides john and the other founder of the club four young students were elected to it they were fine young fellows of an idealist turn of mind as the saying is with high purposes and enthusiastic for vague ideals they had not yet come into contact with the hard realities of life they had all well-to-do parents no cares and knew nothing at all of the struggle for a subsistence john on the other hand had just left the most unpleasant surroundings he had seen people who were always ready to quarrel conceited empty-headed pupils of the theatrical academy here he found himself transplanted into an entirely new world there were these happy youths going to their well-supplied tables smoking fine cigars taking walks and poeticizing beautifully over the beauty of life which they knew nothing of rules were drawn up for the club which received the name runa which means song the choice of this title was probably due to the northern renaissance which came in with the scandinavian movement its chief ornaments were carl the fifteenth in poetry vinga and molstrom in painting and molen in sculpture recently it had been quickened by bjorsen's and ibsen's dramas on subjects from the old norse life the study of icelandic which had been newly introduced into the university also lent strength to this movement the number of members of the club was not to exceed nine each of them was known by a runic sign john was called Froy, and the other founder of the club ur every variety of opinion was represented ur was a great patriot and venerated sweden with its memories in his opinion it had the most brilliant history in europe and had always been free for the rest he was a practically minded man with a special faculty for statistics politics and biography he was a severe and clever critic and also managed the affairs of the club he was a reliable friend good company helpful and hearty secondly there was a full-blooded romanticist who read heine and drank absinthe a sensitive youth enthusiastic for all old ideals but especially for heine there was also a seraph who sang of the indescribably little 
especially the happiness of childhood fourthly a silent worshipper of nature and lastly an eclectic philosopher and improvisator who had an extraordinary faculty for improvising in any style whatever when requested two minutes after he had been asked he would stand up and speak or sing on the spur of the moment in the character of anacreon horace dieta or any one else and even in foreign languages the first meeting of the club was at thurs who was lodged the most comfortably in two rooms and had the best pipes as one of the founders of the club john first of all read his prologue which according to the rules of the society had to be in verse it began by asking after the ancient bard brog and his harp which was now silent brog represented the new norse element the resuscitation of which was believed necessary the whole program of the idealists was called a trivial striving all the great efforts of their contemporaries after reality and for the improvement of the condition of life was trivial the spirit was taken prisoner in matter and therefore all that was material was to be regarded as the enemy such was the teaching of the romanticists and of john's prologue then the poet went into nature listened to the bells of the cathedral the wind the pines and the singing of the birds in order to ask the very natural question nature sings why should i then be silent he resolved to be no longer silent but to sing about the joyous youthful springtime of life its autumn and about love to one's native soil then he said came the wise man with the frozen heart took his song dissected it and found that it was all nonsense thus the song was killed by overwiseness it is not easy to say exactly now what john meant by overwiseness in eighteen seventy he probably had simply forebodings of future critics and the wise man was no other than the reviewer then he inveighed against the wretched mercenary souls who worship the golden calf but do not love songs this had no connection with contemporary matters for the sixties were remarkable for bad harvests and consequently for want of gold the swindles by company promoters began with the seventies but it was the custom of the contemporary poets to attack money and the golden calf and therefore john did so in his prologue now began a life of poetic idleness every evening they met either in a restaurant or in each other's rooms but the time was not wasted in view of his future authorship john could borrow books from the well-stocked libraries of his friends and the interchange of opinions accustomed him to look at literature from different points of view but for them real life public interests contemporary politics did not exist they lived in dreams sometimes his lower-class consciousness awoke and he asked himself what he had to do among these rich youths but he soon stilled these scruples by drink and talk and encouraged himself to go forward and demand something of life for he had in his companion's opinion a good chance his room was a wretched one the rain came through the roof and he had no proper bed but only a plank bed which in the daytime served as a sofa 
when time hung heavily on his hands and he grew weary of poetical discussions he looked up his old schoolfellow the natural history student there he looked through the microscope and heard of darwin and the new scientific views his friend gave him well-meant practical advice and recommended him to get out of his difficulties by writing a one-act play in verse for the theatre royal john objected that his dramatic talent had not scope enough in one act and said that he would rather write a tragedy in five yes but it's harder to get that accepted replied his friend finally he let himself be persuaded and determined to carry out a small idea he had for a short play based on thorvaldsen's first visit to rome his friend lent him books on italy and john set to work in fourteen days the piece was ready that will be acted said his friend it has dramatic points you see since it was a long time to the next meeting of the club john hastened in the evening to thurs and rid and read the piece to them they were both of the same opinion as the natural history student that the piece would be performed they had a champagne supper and kept drinking till the morning and then went to sleep on the floor of red's room with the punch glasses by them in a couple of hours they awoke finished their half-empty glasses at sunrise and went out to continue the celebration of the occasion the sympathy of john's friends was hearty unselfish and warm without a trace of envy he always remembered with pleasure this first success as one of the brightest recollections of his youth the enthusiastic devoted red increased horn's debt of gratitude by copying out the pieces in his graceful handwriting then it was sent to the board of management of the theatre royal spring arrived and they spent the month of may in a continual carouse the club had a small room in the restaurant lilia fortiviet for their evening suppers there they talked made speeches and drank enormously at last the term ended and they had to part but they arranged to meet once more at stockholm and celebrate the festival day of the club by an excursion into the country at six o'clock one june morning the four members of the club met at skepsholm where they hired a rowing boat the chest of the club a cardboard box containing documents was stowed away with baskets of provisions and bottles of wine after oz and rid had taken the oars they steered the boat to the canal leading through the zoological gardens in order to reach the place they had appointed a promontory of lighting island thurs played airs on the flute to bellman songs and fro john accompanied him on a guitar which he had learnt to play at Upsala. as soon as they landed breakfast was laid in a meadow by the shore the club chest adorned with leaves and flowers was set in the middle of the tablecloth and on it were set the brandy bottles and glasses john who had studied antiquities for his play sinking hellas arranged the meal in the greek style so that they wore garlands and ate reclining the fire was lit between some stones and coffee was made at nine o'clock in the morning they drank brandy and punch john read his drama the free thinker which was duly criticized then they gave full course to their eloquence thurs was the best speaker he could express emotions and thoughts rhythmically 
poems were read and received with applause john sang folk songs to the accompaniment of his guitar some on sentimental subjects and some on improper ones at noon they were still in high spirits but inclined to be sleepy in the afternoon when the sun was over lilia varton they had a short sleep and then the carouse passed into a new phase thurs the israelite had recited a poem on the greatness of the north and called on the old gods of scandinavia ur the patriot denied him the right to appropriate other people's gods the jewish question came up they took fire and nearly quarrelled but ended by embracing then began the sentimental stage they had to weep for alcohol has this effect on the membranes of the stomach and the lacrimal ducts ur first felt this and unconsciously sought for a melancholy subject he burst into tears when asked why he did not know but said at last that he had been treated as a buffoon which he always was he declared that he had a very serious nature and that he also had great troubles which no one knew about but now he unburdened his heart and told us a domestic story after he had done so he became cheerful again but the evening was long and they began to wish to go home their brains were empty they were tired of each other and weary of play and drinking they began to reflect and examine the philosophy of intoxication from whence do men derive this desire to make themselves senseless what lies behind it is it the southern exiles longing for a lost sunny existence in northern lands there must be some felt necessity underlying intoxication for a vice like this would not have laid hold of all mankind without reason is it that the member of society in a state of intoxication throws away all the lies of society for the laws of social intercourse involuntarily forbid one to speak out all one's thoughts otherwise whence comes the same in vino veritas why did the greeks honor bacchus as one who improved men and manners why did dionysus love peace and why was he said to increase riches has wine which is chiefly drunk by men some influence on the development of man's intelligence and activity so that he becomes superior to woman and why do the mohammedans who drink no wine stand on what is regarded as a lower level of civilization as salt is used as a daily nutrient to replace the salts which their hunting forefathers found in the blood of beasts of the chase does not wine compensate for some lost nutritive matter belonging to earlier stages and if so which some idea or necessity must underlie so singular a custom perhaps the need of losing consciousness justifies the axiom of the pessimists that consciousness is the beginning of suffering wine makes one naive and unconscious as a child or even as an animal is it the lost paradise which one wishes to recover but the remorse which follows it remorse and acidity of the stomach have the same symptoms is there then a confusion in our sensations called remorse 
which are only heartburn or does the drinker returned to consciousness regret that he has exposed himself by daylight and betrayed his secrets there is something to feel remorse for in that he is ashamed that he has been taken by surprise he feels afraid because he has exposed himself and given away his weapons remorse and fear are close neighbors yet once more the members of the club drowned their consciousness in drink and then got into the boat to proceed home john and thurs began a dispute about bellman which lasted till they reached skepsholm and closed with sharp remarks on both sides john had an old grudge against this poet once as a child he had been ill for a whole summer and had by chance taken bellman's fridman's epistles out of his father's bookcase the book seemed to him silly but he was too young to form a well-grounded opinion on it later on it sometimes happened that his father sat at the piano and hummed bellman's songs the boy found it incomprehensible that his father and uncle admired them so much subsequently one christmas he saw a violent controversy break out between his mother and his uncle on the subject of bellman the latter set the poet above everything bible sermons and all there were depths he said in bellman depths indeed probably adderbaum's romanticist one-sided criticism had filtered through the daily papers to the middle classes as a schoolboy the student john had sung up amaryllis and other idols of bellman's naturally without understanding them or thinking of the meaning of the words he sang in a quartet or choir for it sounded well finally in eighteen sixty seven he read jungren's lectures and a light broke upon him but not one of jungren's kindling he thought the latter mad bellman was a ballad singer that was true but a great poet the greatest poet of the north impossible bellman had sung his songs composed on the french model for the court and his own friends but not for the common people who would not have understood amaryllis eol the tritons Frugia, and all the rococo stock in trade he died and was forgotten why had he been disinterred by adderbaum because the pugnacious romantic school required an embodiment of irregularity to set up against the classicists as they had nothing of their own to boast of thus the romantic school gained the day and when one considers how cowardly most people are in the face of public opinion and the tendency of the middle class to ape its superiors and reverence authority one ceases to be surprised at the elevation of bellman jungren and eichhorn outstripped adderborn in finding beauty and genius in his writings they were reinforced by the clerical element and thus the idol was set up for worship bystrom the sculptor had already magnified the little lottery secretary and court poet into a dionysus and lent him the features of an antique bust of bacchus bellman's idols are careless extemporized compositions with forced rhymes and as disconnected as the thoughts in the brain of a drunkard one does not know whether it is day or night the thunder rolls in the sunshine and the waves beat while the boat is floating calmly in the waters 
they simply provide a text for music and for that purpose one might use a book of addresses the meaning of the words does not matter as long as they sound well according to his custom thurs took the matter personally it was an attack on his good taste and on his honor for john said that his admiration for bellman was mere humbug that he had read himself into it and that it was not genuine thurs on the other hand declared john to be presumptuous because he wished to criticize the greatest swedish poet prove that he is the greatest said john tegner and atterbom say so that is no proof simply because you have a spirit of contradiction doubt is the beginning of certainty and absurd assertions must arouse opposition in a healthy brain and so on although there is no such thing as a judgment which holds good universally since every judgment is individualistic there are on the other hand judgments of a majority and of a party by means of these john was suppressed and kept silence on the subject of bellman for many years only when later on the old historian Frixel proved that bellman was not the apostle of sobriety which eichhorn and jungren had made him out to be and also no god but a mediocre ballad singer did john see a gleam of hope that his individual opinion might become some day the opinion of the majority but he already saw the question from another point of view sweden would have been neither unhappier nor worse if bellman had never lived he would like to have said to the patriots and democrats bellman was a poet of stockholm and of the court who jested very cruelly with poor people he would like to have said to the good templars who sang bellman's songs you are singing drinking songs which were written during fits of intoxication and celebrate drink for his own part john held that bellman's songs were pleasant to sing because of the light french melodies which accompanied them and as for their french morality it did not vex him at all quite the contrary but earlier at the age of twenty-one he was vexed by it for he was an idealist and desired purity in poetry just as the surviving idealists and admirers of bellman do at the present time these have used the word humor to save themselves and their morality but what do they mean by humor is it jest or earnestness what is jest the reluctance of the cowardly to speak out his mind humor reflects the double nature of man the indifference of the natural man to conventional morality and the christian sigh over immorality which is after all so enticing and seductive humor speaks with two tongues one of the satyr the other of the monk the humorist lets the maenades loose but for old unsound reasons thinks that he ought to flog her with rods this is a transitional form of humor which is passing away and already at the last gasp the greatest modern writers have thrown away the rod and play the hypocrite no longer but speak their minds plainly out the old tippler's sentimentality can no longer count for a good heart for it has been discovered to be merely bad nerves 
after arguing till they were weary the members of the club landed in stockholm harbor End of chapter eight